0: So good afternoon Uh, for me, this afternoon is where the rubber hits the road. We've been, um, touting and intending and committing to offering, uh, information and stories and bits and pieces of practice, which are, if not integrated, at least touched by this concept, this um, energetics of the masculine and the feminine. And the interesting thing is, I went, as I went about doing this, um, it became apparent to me that we hear all about um, Ananda and Arula and Buddha and, like, all of these men knowing all along that... Um, There must have been uh, some integration and relationship to both energetics. But it's not integrated, it's not integrated in the text. I'm gonna be speaking a bit mostly about compassion and last year for those of you that were here, um, I tied it to Quan Yin, right, and Quan Yin, female energetic, but she also can come as he, and she, she, he can also come as they. And this year she said, I'm done. There were more female energetics around besides me. So I went on the search. And after some conversation and engaging with my colleagues, um, I thought I might share just a little bit about Sujata, whom is actually perhaps an unspoken hero in terms of what has led us to be sitting here 2,600 years later. So, last night or yesterday afternoon, Tawari spoke about um, the journey and path that the Buddha was on, and she kind of Uh, left off at the point where uh, he had engaged as an ascetic for six years and was really kind of on his last last wing, last breath. He basically was starving himself to death. And one of the iterations of the story of Sujata is that uh, the Buddha was sitting under the banyan tree starting to understand, it was starting to dawn on him that maybe this wasn't gonna be the way. Maybe there was another way, maybe uh, there was a middle path and just as that was dawning on him, sitting under the banyan tree, Sujata was making her way down the uh, other side of the river to offer an offering and saw this emaciated man, didn't know who he was, and her offering was that of uh, rice milk or a rice gruel. And out of the compassion that sprung up in her heart, she went and offered him some rice milk, which he took and actually ate. And that began the 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 nourishment and the uh, conviction of understanding that a middle path was what was called for. So you can, well, let me read you one of the versions. There's at least seven or eight or nine and Pam may even know of more, but this one I think um, will do good in terms of what I want to offer. From the day the great being had gone forth from the household life until the day of his enlightenment equaled six years. Now in this story, he had already resumed eating normal food and his body had returned to a normal state. The woman, Sujata, was offering food and nourishment to the great being. She was the daughter of a householder in a village in Uravela Sinagama. She was offering this dish of rice gruel with milk, or rice cooked with pure cow's milk. That's important, pure cow's milk. It was a vegetarian food containing no meat or fish, used especially as an offering to deities the states that Sujata had made a prayer to the deity of a certain banyan tree for a husband of equal status and for a son by him. So status, her status, because you know back then and, and now it still continues, caste and class is very prominent and relevant in India. So she prayed to this tree deity that she obtain a husband that was at the same level as her and that they had a son. When she had obtained that wish, she cooked the milk rice as an offering and thanks. Before the day she was to cook the rice, Sujata had some of her servants lead the herd of 1,000 cows to a forest of licorice grass so that the cows could eat their fill. Then she divided two herds of 500 head each and milked the 500 cows of one herd and fed that milk to the 500 cows of the other herd. She then continued to divide that herd and fed half of the milk of the other half until there were only eight cows left. She then took the milk from those eight cows to make her milk rice. Does that sound definitive? Does that sound like it was just happenstance? That took a lot of planning and effort When the rice was cooked, Sujata sent Perna, one of her servant girls, to clean up the area where the banyan tree was. Perna came back to Sujata with a report that the deity who was to receive the offerings had materialized and was already sitting at the foot of the banyan tree. Excited, Sujata lifted the tray of milk rice to her head and carried it to the banyan tree together with Perna. Seeing that it was as Purna had told her, she came forward and proffered the tray of milk rice. The great being received it and looked at Sujata. She understood from his look that he had no bowl or any other dish with which to eat the food, and so she made an offering of both the rice and the dish. Having offered the rice, she walked back to her house full of happiness, believing that she had made offerings to a deva, which is another word for deity. So here this woman was where the Buddha or Gautama, as he was at that point, because this is actually pointing to the fact that he was unable to obtain enlightenment until he was offered this rice milk as a metaphor, I think, um, for bringing nourishment and the feminine principle forward. That for those six years, he was really engaged with a very um, strict and um, rigorous and rigid and uh, linear set of practices in the hopes that he could tame the body and the mind. And that brought him nothing but almost death. But then once he began to recognize the importance of the balance that was available or that was needed, I should say. Um, He became open to that experience and here comes, sat under the same tree that this person, Sujata, had made a request of in terms of satisfying a wish of hers. I don't think that it, excuse me, is lost on anybody that this milk rice could metaphorically be um, um, mm, measured against the mother's breast milk as she nourishes her infant, right? And so uh, Sujata offering this, uh, this milk rice to the Buddha who then was reborn, well, he wasn't the Buddha, to Gautama, who was then reborn as the Buddha, right, through nourishment through generosity, through compassion, and through joy. Because Sujata was very, very, very grateful that she had received, in response to her wishes, uh, exactly what she had wanted. Even though she didn't realize at the time she was the last person to provide a meal to Gautama, on his last day of being an ordinary man prior to his awakening to Buddhahead, She demonstrates joy rooted in generosity and gratitude. On seeing the Buddha, she wishes for his good fortune just as she recognizes her own good fortune and the fulfillment of her dearest wishes. It is said that following later times, she became one of the Buddha's early disciples. It is fairly well practiced and known that generosity opens the doorway to practice and awakening. So when I when I thought about this story, you know, hearing um, a lot of what was asked in the questions yesterday and a lot of what came up in the groups today, um, this notion of bringing awareness and understanding that uh, gratitude generosity, and compassion, all heart qualities. You know, even though we've been talking about the four Brahma Viharas, um, myself and some of my colleagues actually think there were probably six or seven of them. And gratitude and generosity and forgiveness would be three of those seven. A poem by Pesha Joyce Gertler, The Healing Time. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them the old wounds, the old misdirections and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say holy, holy. So this notion of gratitude, gratitude for how things are gratitude for uh, what comes to us. In practice, Buddhist monks begin each day with a chant of gratitude for the blessings of their life. Native American elders begin each ceremony with grateful prayers to Mother Earth and Father Sky, to the four directions, to the animal, plant, and mineral relatives who share our earth and support our life. In many African traditions, gratitude is expressed to the ancestors before beginning each day. In Tibet, the monks and nuns even offer prayers of gratitude for the suffering they've been given. Grant that I might have enough suffering to awaken in me the deepest possible compassion and wisdom the two wings necessary for freedom. The aim of spiritual life is to awaken a joyful freedom, a benevolent and compassionate heart in spite of everything. Gratitude is a gracious acknowledgement of all that sustains us, an honoring of our blessings, great and small, and an appreciation of the moments of good fortune that sustain our life every day. Gratitude is confidence in life itself. In it, we feel how the same force that pushes grass through the cracks in the sidewalk invigorates our own life. Gratitude gladdens the heart. It's not sentimental, it's not jealous, it's not judgmental. Gratitude does not envy or compare. That seems to be the land that many of us are in right now, judging, comparing. Gratitude receives in wonder the myriad offerings of the rain and the earth, the care that supports every single life. As gratitude grows, it gives rise to joy. We experience the courage to rejoice in our own good fortune and in the fortune of others. Joy is natural to an open heart. With gratitude, we are not afraid of pleasure. We do not mistakenly believe it is disloyal, to the suffering of the world, to honor the happiness we have been given or even disloyal to ourselves. Our culture and society is particularly prone to pay attention, to spend a lot of time ruminating around what's wrong, whether it's what's wrong externally or what's wrong internally. Then there's generosity Knowing the happiness of freedom or enlightenment only comes through the experience and action of generosity. It's actually a place to sit, a place to land, a place to stand, a place to be, this generosity. We experience joy and clarity in times of generosity. When we renounce mind states of greed stinginess, aversion. So this gratitude and this generosity are kind of the um, wellspring or the tilling of the soil for compassion to fully land and infuse us such that uh, we start to blur the lines between self and others. Love asks you to let go. Compassion asks you to let go. One's capacity to be wholeheartedly present for anyone or anything in this world asks us to release our longing for how things used to be and our yearning for a better future. Letting go frees us to take our seat firmly in this moment and in the truth of loss and change. Letting go frees us of the burden of obsessing about what used to be and what might be in the future. Past, future, keeps us out of the present. Our willingness to let go of what should be liberates us to embrace what is. This is one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and the lesson that none of us can avoid most of us discover through reflection that the places we resist and cling to most tenaciously are also the places we suffer most acutely. Most of us discover through reflection that the places we resist and cling to most tenaciously are also the places we suffer most acutely. They are the places we feel most imprisoned in a world governed by self and disconnected from others. Compassion is a release from that imprisonment and a healer of separation. Letting go does not leave us marooned in indifference or apathy. We are not asked to let go of our love or bonds of commitment and care. We are learning step by step, moment by moment, to let go of suffering and separation. Our capacity to find a boundless compassion is released by our capacity to let go. Those are the words of Christina Feldman. You know, I said in one of my groups today that, what we were getting present to, is the reality, and the unavoidable knowing of the first noble truth. Here we are, second day in, not even that long day, long time in. And most everybody, although it's been, you know, some people are riding and some people are having a, a, a grateful, joyful experience in the moment, but for each of us, from whatever direction we're coming, are having an opportunity to really get up close and personal with that first noble truth. So we've spent these first few days together cultivating the mind heart with this Vipassana practice, building momentum and deepening a gathered mind. We've had numerous teachings and received instructions for working with the body breath, with Vedana, or feelings, with walking meditation. We've listened to teachings on suffering and the end of suffering. We've taken the precepts and refuges. We've renounced our technology. We've also spent time in the practice of metta, where we've worked with ourselves a friend and all beings. I'd say it's been a full and rich two-day retreat. Notwithstanding all of nature that has joined us, including the full moon, the snow, the animals and insects, other beings seen and unseen, all gathered to support us in our efforts. All of us here joining our intentions to establish and nurture our practices as we move forward towards wisdom, freedom, and sustained joy. So why have we come here? Why, why even bother? <laughs> Bhante Gunaratana says, Meditation is called a great teacher. It is the cleansing crucible fire that works slowly but surely through understanding. The greater our understanding, the more flexible and tolerant and the more compassionate we can be. We can feel love towards others because we understand them. And we understand others because we are coming to having an understanding of ourselves. We're looking deeply inside and seeing self-illusion and our own human failings seen our humanity, and our learning to forgive and to love. All that we've been engaged with in these two days is a manifestation and an understanding of what it means to be human. A practiced meditator who has achieved a profound understanding of life inevitably will relate to the world with a deep and uncritical love. Meditation is like cultivating new land. To make a field out of forest, one first has to clear the trees and pull out the stumps. Then we till the soil and fertilize it. Sow our seed and harvest the crop. To cultivate our minds, first we clear out the various irritants that are in the way, pulling them out by the root so they won't grow back. Then we fertilize. We pump energy and discipline into the mental soil. Then we sow the seed and harvest the crops of faith, morality, mindfulness, and wisdom. Another purpose of meditation is personal transformation. Meditation changes one's character by a process of sensitization by training us to be deeply aware of our own thoughts, words, and deeds. So you can't run from it. That's why you came, to get personally intimate with this nervous system, with these thoughts, with these emotions, with these feelings, such that it gives you access to getting off the wheel of samsara. It's the only way out, coming to understand and know. Arrogance evaporates and antagonism dries up. Mind becomes still and calm. Life smooths out. We become prepared to meet the ups and downs of existence. Tension, fear, and worry are reduced. Restlessness recedes and passion moderates. Life becomes a glide instead of a struggle. All of this happens through understanding. Meditation sharpens our concentration and our thinking power piece by piece. Our own subconscious motives and mechanics become clear to us. Intuition sharpens. The precision of our thoughts increases, and gradually we come to a direct knowledge of things as they really are, without prejudice, without judgment, without illusion. Sharon Salzberg says, spirituality is the movement from our prison of self-blame and preoccupation to an inclusive and open engagement with all of life. In many ways, a spiritual path is essentially about connection, a deep connection to our own inherent capacity for wisdom and love, no matter what a connection to a bigger picture of life, no matter what. She goes on to say we can easily go from morning until night disconnected, not only from genuine contact with others, but also from more fundamental and loving aspects of our own hearts. The spiritual practices of meditation, generosity, service, Gratitude and loving kindness not only turn this tendency around towards genuine connection, they also become the manifestation of a free mind. Spiritual life is a place where the means and the ends are the same. One of the things that most nourishes true compassion is clarity when we know what we are thinking and know what we are feeling. This clarity differentiates compassion from what might be thought of as a conventional kind of self-preoccupation when we care only about ourselves and not about others. It is said, the Buddha said at one point that if we truly loved ourselves, we would never harm another, because if we harm another, it is in some way diminishing who we are. It is taking away from rather than adding to our lives. He also said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so too is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. Sharon says, our view of who we are, what we are capable of, what matters in the world, molds our intentions, which in turn mold our actions. How we look at our lives becomes the basis for how we act and how we live and whether our choices are shaped by love and kindness. Transforming our understanding transforms our whole life, our happiness, our degree of connectedness, our freedom. It might be tempting to undertake a meditation practice or path of development with the same kind of clinging motivation with which we might take on anything else. Perhaps we feel empty inside. We feel bereft in some way. We feel we're not good enough. And so we undertake spiritual practice to ameliorate all of that. Spiritual practice is not about having and getting. It is more about more compassion towards ourselves and towards others. It is not about assuming a new self-image or manufactured persona. It is about compassionate, Naturally coming out of what we see, what we understand. And this is more and more and more true. I guess it's always been true. But in these times, mm, to find the space to be who we are in our authenticity, in our truth, is paramount. To intervene in this ongoing. Place where we end up not being well. If we're not able to be who we are, if we're not able to bring forward our, our truth of what is so, we will be sick, whether it be physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's going to take that kind of reality, that kind of truth, that kind of authenticity to actually intervene, perhaps support us in changing course so that all beings can be well, including our mother, the earth. Compassion is like a mirror into which we can always look. It is like a stream that steadily carries us. It is like a cleansing fire that continually transforms us. Compassion for ourselves is the basis for our practice of compassion towards others. It's impossible to practice genuine compassion for others without the foundation of self-compassion. Bhante Gunaratana says, if we try to act compassionately out of a sense of personal unworthiness, or the belief that others are more important than we are, the true source of our actions is aversion for ourselves, not compassion for others. If we offer help out of a sense of superiority, which can show up looking like pity, to those we are assisting, our actions may actually be motivated by pride. Genuine compassion arises from the tender heart we feel for our own suffering. So in these five days, you're in a PhD course. As the Buddha said, investigating the whole world with my mind, never did I find anyone Dearer than myself. Since oneself is dearer than others, one who loves oneself should never harm another. That's from the Udana Sutras. One of my teachers um, that really uh, supported and cultivated me um, and held my practice. Uh, as something to fully commit to before I even knew that, Larry Yang says, be compassionate to where you are. This is the process of the heart stretching beyond old patterns of defensiveness and reactivity. The confidence, strength, and personal authority to right ourselves when we encounter suffering and pain comes from a cultivated heart and mind which trains us and prepares us to meet the suffering and pain. To meet the suffering and pain we encounter in relationship to ourselves and other beings. Compassion is a responsive movement of the heart. The heart quivers in response to suffering. Compassion leads us to appropriate action. And the appropriate, compassionate action is just the pure, heartfelt hope that the pain and suffering stops. So, one of the things that I also spoke to in one of the groups today was it's still so early. You know, even when you have a home practice, there's a lot more that's available in terms of coming on retreat and us remembering that in this process of retreating, especially in the early days, there is a process of detoxing that's going on, right? And sometimes we think it's us, but it's actually the purification that's happening. So at least in the three groups um, that I was with today, I was happy not at your suffering, but to know that you were and you knew it. and that for moments, you're pausing and allowing it to be as it is. And every time you do that, you actually strengthen the heart. And you actually set the road for clarity of mind to show up. It's not easy, right? It takes intention, persistence, patience, and practice to move to holding it, meaning compassion as a core value and cultivating it as a being state. The first step in developing compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and suffering exists for everybody, everywhere at some time or another. Some suffering is intense, and terrible, and some is quiet and small. But it's all suffering just the same. It is a thread that needs to be recognized clearly and grounds us in the awareness that we are all connected and moving along in our lives living what it means to be human. Compassion is the antidote for anger and bitterness. Just one of the antidotes, there's quite a few. If you keep compassion alive in your listening and understanding, then anger and bitterness cannot arise. Compassion alone can keep us from becoming irritated, angry, or full of despair. Whenever compassion and understanding are alive in the heart, and mind, we are safe. Whatever the circumstance or situation we are meeting. Denial, resistance, aversion, turning away from this fact and seeing with an obtuse mind only prolongs and aggravates the inevitable struggle that can arise when we do not see clearly things as they are. with the cultivation of the qualities that incline the heart towards compassion. The compassionate heart-mind builds the capacity to withstand the turmoil that is often the result of clinging and grasping, or of any of the other visitors that can drop in when the mind becomes overwhelmed and clouded. I know for some of us and some of the other groups as well as mine, we talked a little bit about the hindrances. So if the hindrances are showing up, then you're right on point. And actually, it's an opportunity to engage with the hindrances such that we become intimate with how they manifest in our nervous systems. Right? So there's um, um, aversion, sloth and torpor, um, doubt. What are the other two? Restlessness. Restlessness. Greed, yes, there you go. A cultivated heart-mind increases our tolerance and willingness to meet challenges and difficulties and to truly know that this moment is like this, unaffected by the storms created by greed, aversion and delusion, and when affected, as will happen, we are able to regain balance and to stabilize our hearts and minds with efficiency, efficacy, and ease. Most often it sets in motion a trajectory to growth, forward movement, and healing, leading us closer and closer to freedom. When we feel broken, at our limit, when we hit bottom, there is an opening there where we can get to see the possibility of living in a different way, not unlike Buddha when he realized that there was a middle path. There was a different way than asceticism because he was about to take himself out through that path. Trauma, trouble, difficulties or struggles are transformative. It demands that we become creative at moving forward and to heal when we can be awake to that sometimes gentle nudge and other times unmistakable push and heed the opening. Quote from Rumi, keep your eye on the bandaged places. That's where the light enters you. even more difficult than acknowledging pain, is opening to it. It takes courage and fortitude to establish an appropriate and rational relationship to pain and suffering. We may have to do it bit by bit, a little at a time, without forcing or being contrived. We also don't want to construct the illusion that we can somehow control the suffering. So is that dispelled by now? Two days in, had a lot of opportunity to see that one. When we do not feel in control, often what shows up is righteous anger or indignation, fear, grief, or pity. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Feeling superior to or in control of one's life and feeling that the other person's suffering is because they lack control. You okay, dear? We don't have do we have any water? It's mine. I don't know if I have a germ. Hmm. That's an awful feeling, to not being able to breathe. Okay, I'll stop again if need be. And you can leave, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's real. That's life, right? And the capacity to know when, thank you, uh, know when to take a pause and do something different. You know, one of the ways we get to uh, move beyond our, maybe not quite as strong, but conditioning. I'll use the word conditioning instead of addiction. That's what I was gonna use, but I'll use conditioning. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is the enjoyment of other people's suffering, even though it is clearly an opposite state from compassion. When we are lost in aversion, it can become hard to detect. Cruelty is devoid of mercy. Compassion practice is an effective way to expose latent cruelty that may exist at an unconscious level. There is a radiance that dawns within when compassion takes over where cruelty has been. Anger and hatred, outrage, fear, and grief are all similar to compassion, but they are just varying states of aversion. And as I spoke to a little bit earlier in terms of our capacity and ability to um, feel, experience, and offer compassion to others um, comes through our capacity to do that for ourselves. It's also, especially in these times, very important for us to engage with, with the uh, uh, vicissitudes of living uh, when clarity and and, and, and love and connection are not present, which is so prevalent in our culture today. It's really, really um, necessary for us to navigate all of those so that when it comes towards you, it stops right there, falls right on the ground. There's no Velcro, you don't reach for it. You know, But we can only engage with the external to the degree and extent that we've engaged with it within ourselves. Compassion for ourselves is often neglected in spiritual practice. The ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity towards ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self. Now I know that might seem oppositional because we're always talking about not self. You know, but actually it's the relative and the universal that I'm speaking to. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self from an awareness of who we are that honors our true capacities and fears our own feelings and integrity along with others. It is a re- spontaneous response to the suffering and pain we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. As our own hearts open and are healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way. At times... Compassion may give rise to action, and at times it will not. Choigam Trungpa calls this the spiritual warrior's tender heart of sadness. And I quote, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space, What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the weakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open exposed. It is the pure raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. power of the compassionate heart, of genuine compassion to transform the pain we encounter is extraordinary. It is this passionate heart that we are being called to cultivate and bring forward to meet the demand of the suffering in our world today. It is only this deep, clear, empty, misperception, anger, greed, aversion, and delusion that has the power and capacity that will meet the cries of the world. You get to define and choose. Choose that heart place and space that calls you to make a difference. Whether it be your own heart cultivation, your family, your community, your state, our country, the world, Where in there is the whisper, this is for you to do. This is where you become engaged. It's not always the loud clamoring of the suffering that demands our touch. The fearlessness of compassion leads us directly into the conflict and suffering of life. Sometimes, only the fire of suffering itself and the consequences of our actions can bring us to deeper understanding, to feel kindness for all beings, to liberation. Then there is the power of this fearless compassion, which can be as tough as it is kind. Sometimes compassion for ourselves and others requires us to set clear limits and boundaries. We must learn to say no, while at the same time, not putting another out of our heart. There is no formula for the practice of compassion. It requires that we listen and attend, understand our motivation, and then move from there, asking what action can really be the most helpful here? There is a certain flexibility needed to respond to changing circumstances, setting limits when necessary, and being flexible at the same time. Compassion allows life to pass through our hearts with its paradoxes of love, joy, and pain. When we hear the call of the compassionate heart, we give what we can We give what we can to stop the war, to protect the children, to heal the environment, to transform prejudice and oppression, to care for the poor, and yet true compassion also loves ourselves, respects our own needs, honors our limits and our true capacity. When genuine compassion and wisdom come together, We honor, love, praise, and include ourselves as well as others. Audre Lorde says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. The perception of separation between self and others transforms and drops away as we cultivate the habit of self-care as a wise way to spend our effort and as a doorway into connection. It is also an act of generosity to take the steps and measures to ensure that we are well. When genuine compassion arises, it moves through us as grace, bringing together a tenderness and fearlessness that could never come by any other means. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. quote by Albert Einstein a human being is a part of a whole called by us universe a part limited by and in time and space one experiences oneself, self one's thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest kind of optical delusion of one's consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. a deep bow to your practice for making that choice to be here willing and able to investigate what it means to be human and how to progress down and towards the path for freedom. We'll see you in a little bit.